The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, welcome, folks, as we're continuing in our verse-by-verse journey through the Gospel of Mark. Now, uh, we're picking it up in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark 4, 35 is where we're picking it up. Hopefully, you have an outline that you received when you came in at the back there. If not, feel free to slip out right now and grab one. But as you're turning there, I want to review something from last week. Is John here? He's not even here. He was here. Okay, well, because I have the answer to his question. I'll wait till the end then to answer John's question. So let's pick it up in Mark chapter 4. So let's remind ourselves of the context. We said with the Gospel of Mark, it can be broken up essentially into three acts. Um, Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. And we said Act 1 is the beginning of the gospel till about, I think it's Mark 7 or 8, where Jesus um, takes them to Caesarea Philippi. And uh, that's sort of in the northeast of the region. And uh, at in Act 1, the whole theme is, who is this? So they're following Jesus and he's doing all these incredible, miraculous things. And the constant theme you're hearing in Mark is, who is this man? Who is this man? Where does he get this power? Where does he get this authority? Who is this? And then Act 2 is where, in Caesarea Philippi, is where he's finally revealed as the Messiah. You know, Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? Some say you're this, some say you're that. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the the Messiah, the son of the living God, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but the Spirit of God, my Father, has revealed this to you. And so then the next question is, um, so he's revealed as the Messiah, but then part two is, who is the Messiah? Because um, for the next few chapters, Jesus is clarifying, okay, I'm the Messiah, but I'm, the Messiah isn't what you think. The Messiah isn't this superpower political guy who's going to come in and crush those dirty Romans. The Messiah is actually going to be taken, tortured, killed but I'll rise from the dead. And they just could not compute that. That was like Superman dying. That, that's impossible. So they just couldn't compute. And so for the next, uh, in, in Mark's gospel, he goes from Caesarea Philippi and journeys down to Jerusalem. And during this portion, Act 2, as they're journeying from Caesarea Philippi south to Jerusalem, he's interacting with them and he's essentially answering the question, who's the Messiah? And then Acts 3 is the, what we'll just call the conflict. And that is the Passion Week, the the week of turmoil in Jerusalem when Jesus is up against the the crowds and up against the uh, uh, Jewish authorities where he's crucified and he dies and and then the empty tomb. So those are Acts 3. We're still in Act 1, but we're getting, we're about halfway through Act 1, okay? So Jesus is still revealing himself to them as the Messiah. So, but he begins first of all, as your outline says, by demonstrating his authority over nature. So again, this is all about Jesus revealing himself to them and them saying, how do you how do, you do this? Who are you? How, how are you doing this? So we begin by he demonstrates his authority over nature. Now as we pick it up in, uh, in Mark 4 verse 35, we see that Jesus is, uh, the disciple is about to head into a storm. Let's pick it up in verse 35. Mark 4 35 says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. 
Now, as your outline says, it's worth noting that they are in the storm because they obeyed Jesus' command. Think about that. That's why I wanted to point out. This is the whole instance of Jesus calms the storm. The disciples are in the middle of the storm. Why? They're in the middle of the storm because they did what Jesus told them to do. And that's important to note. Often we think that people are struggling because they have been disobedient. And sometimes we do struggle because we've been disobedient. And sometimes we struggle because we have been obedient. Um, a classic example there would be found in Luke. Luke chapter 13, 1 to 5. In that passage is where um, the, the disciples ask, you know, why, why is this person sick? Because of his parents? You know, that was the common thinking. Did, did he sin? Did he do something wrong? Did his parents do something wrong? Why is he struggling? And Jesus said, no, none of that. And Jesus gave some instances. Do you think, when that tower of Siloam fell on people, do you think that they were more evil? than other people? No. He's saying, you, you can't be that simplistic. You can't look at a negative situation and think, because something bad's happened, well, clearly, you know, that, that's almost karma thinking, and that's not, karma's not biblical. It doesn't work that way. And here's an example where they're in the middle of a storm. Why? Because they obeyed Jesus. The, the day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side, okay? The other side generally referred to the Gentile portion of the lake, Okay, the Gentile side of the lake. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them. What does that mean? They took him just as he was. That likely refers back to chapter 4, verse 1. Remember how this all began? Jesus is standing on a boat just off the shore because the crowds were so large. So the implication is, yeah, he's still in the boat and he stayed in the boat and then they just took him in that boat. And the fact that there were other boats implies there's an entourage. It's not just the disciples and Jesus. There's like a fleet of boats that are following, okay? Verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now, the geographical reality of the Sea of Galilee, so um, this is looking at it, slicing it from the side. So um, there's kind of mountains or hills, and then there's the low lake, and then there's mountains and hills. And so the, the lake or the Sea of Galilee is sort of in a bowl. This would be the west, and this is the east. So this is uh, Jordan over here, and this is the Mediterranean Sea would be over here. So, so there's the, the Sea of Galilee there. So what would happen is the, there's warm air over the water and the cool air would come down sometimes, rush down from the mountains or the hills and mix with the warm air and that would cause these squalls to come up quickly. Still happens to this day. And so because it's kind of in the Rift Valley there, the Jordan Rift Valley, it's sort of a natural uh, geographical place where storms could quickly come up because of that you know, warm mass, cold mass and warm mass meeting together. As your outline says as well, the construction of first century fishing boats made them vulnerable to such storms. Okay, so these little fishing boats, it made them vulnerable to such storms. Now, let me remind you, in March of 2020, we, Lord willing, are taking a tour to Israel again. And we are going to go visit a fishing boat right on this shore 
on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. That They call it the Jesus boat or the Galilee boat. It was discovered in 1986 during a drought. The sea, uh, it was a drought that year, so the water level was way down. And they found a boat, two brothers were walking along the shore there, and they saw this sort of wood sticking up and they dug down a bit and they found a fishing boat that has been carbon dated and so on to the first century to the 70 bc to 50 a.d so this is that's why it's called the jesus boat and you can go visit it people who were with us on the last trip we did visit it we saw it we were right there and um and if you come with us in march 2020 you'll see it too and uh, so it, it's uh, 27 feet long, these fishing boats were, 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide. Uh, it was made of oak frame with cedar planks, and it sat 15 people. So, I mean, it's just perfect for the Jesus and the disciples. Um, and had a flat bottom, and they had flat bottoms so they could get in close to the shore and fish right close to the shore, Okay. And so those type of boats were, would be kind of, you know, it's a tension they managed. They made them this way because it was easier to get around and to fish in. But every so often when there's a snow squall, a snow squall, a, uh, a, a little storm, they would uh, make them kind of tippy. So be it. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, um, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and asked and, and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, the word there in verse 38, the word cushion, likely refers to the large sandbag that was kept in the stern for ballast, for balance. So they would keep, we know this, they would keep these big sandbags at the back of the boat for ballast. And uh, likely Jesus curled up on this sandbag in the back of the boat. So again, this fits with what we know archaeologically, Okay. Now, Jesus' sleep, it communicates two things. First of all, as your outline says, it communicates he was tired. Well, duh, right? He was tired. That's why he's sleeping. And secondly, it communicates he was trusting the Father. He was tired, and he was trusting the Father. Uh, Scripture equates trusting God with sleeping soundly quite a bit. Uh, I've given you some passages there. Let me read them for you. Psalm 3, 5 to 6 says this. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. So I can sleep soundly because I'm trusting the Lord. Psalm 4, verse 8 says, In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Proverbs 3, 24 when you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. So often in Scripture, sound sleeping in the midst of chaos is a sign of trusting in God. And it could be this is what you know, Mark is alluding to here. But as your outline says, to the disciples, Jesus' sleep communicated a lack of care and concern. So the disciples, no, it wasn't a sign that he was trusting. It was a sign that he didn't care. Lord, don't you care if we drown? Uh, when I read that in preparation, I, I thought back to when I first was a, a senior pastor back in the uh, late 80s, and, uh, and uh, I was preached on this passage, I guess, because the, back then was when, you know, as, your, as a church, you would publish the sermon titles in the local newspaper. And uh, I used to try to use these cutesy sermon titles back then. I kind of don't do that anymore. But... Uh, 
And so the, the sermon title in the newspaper was, um, When You're in Trouble, Wake Up Jesus. And I thought, oh, that's a cutesy little title. Nobody knew what the passage I was speaking on was, but the, the whole th theme of that sermon, as I remember, was, you know, Jesus, in the boat of your life, you know, if you're in trouble, just go to Jesus, run to Jesus, wake up Jesus. And of course, I had somebody phone me. I don't know who it was, but uh, they knew I was the pastor. They looked my name up in the phone book, and they'd read the sermon title, and they berated me. Jesus isn't asleep. How dare you? God's not asleep. And they just told me what a terrible preacher and teacher I was and how I had my theology all wrong. But you can see what we're talking about here. In a situation like this, run to Jesus. Stir him in your life. You know, Wake up Jesus uh, in your moment of, of trouble and difficulty. But what they were doing was they were assigning to Jesus, you just don't care about us. The fact that you're, that you're not panicking means you don't care. That's what, what they were connecting those two dots. Um, let's keep reading in verse 39. So he got up. So they woke him up. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Now, this is the first of Jesus' so-called nature miracles that's listed in Mark's gospel. As your outline says, Jesus used the same words here that he used here. He used the same words when rebuking demons. So the same phrase he used here is what he used when he was rebuking demons. Literally, what Jesus said, and some of you might not like this phrase, but you have an issue with Jesus, not me. Literally what Jesus said was, shut up. He stood up, looked at the wind and the waves and said, shut up. Quiet, be still. They're much more polite here. And, but that's what he would say to demons as well. Shut your mouths. Now, as your outline says, letter B, this was an incredible display of Jesus' divine authority over nature. It was an incredible display of Jesus' divine authority over nature, but it was an authority, as your outline says, that only God possesses. Only God possesses this authority. And again, this is all part of the, who is this? How can you do this? Now notice, Jesus doesn't say, Father, I ask you. you know, he didn't do that. There are times that he's done that, but even when he did that in the past, remember when he, he rose Lazarus, raised Lazarus from the dead? He said, I'm saying this so that they might believe. I'm, making this, I'm saying this out loud so they can understand our relationship, what's happening here. But Jesus just did this on his own authority. He didn't call upon anyone else's authority. He didn't ask the Father to do something. He just stood up and said, be still. Be quiet. Stop. And so he displayed this divine authority over nature, an authority that only God possesses. I challenge you to stop you know, go out to Stanley Park the next time it storms and just look at the water and say, stop it. <laughs> See how that gets you, you know. But Jesus had the ability. Now, it says in Psalm 89.9, speaking of God, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 104 verse 7, speaking of God, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Listen to this one, Psalm 107, starting at verse 23. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord. And that word Lord is the tetragrammaton. It's Yahweh. They saw the works of Yahweh, his wonderful deeds in the deep. 
For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depth. So big waves. In their peril, their courage, these are the sailors, in their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Jesus here does what only God can do. And they know these scriptures, and in their minds are going, who are you? Now, as your outline says, let us see, this scenario is an example of the tension of God in flesh. Divine authority meets human weakness. This is a classic example of divine authority meaning human, meeting human weakness. Think about this. Jesus is asleep in the boat. Why? Because he's tired. They wake him up and he stands up and says, peace be still, and he calms the storm. So he displays divine power. Well, if he has divine power, then why is he tired? But this is the classic uh, tension of God in flesh. Remember, we, we studied this when we studied the Trinity. And, but let me take you to Philippians. Keep your finger there in Mark and turn right to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Um, says, in your relationships, this is the Apostle Paul talking to Christ followers, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So in, in how you treat each other, you should think like Jesus thought when he was on earth. Well, how did Jesus thought? What was his mindset? Here he is. Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness, by being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And therefore, because Jesus did all this, God, the Father, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here it is. We learn that it's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The Son adds to his divine nature, he adds human nature. He adds flesh to the, to the soul, which is the Son of God. And so there's this tension of God in flesh. Uh, the divine being ch choosing to humble himself and limit himself while he was on the earth to the point that he would allow himself to be killed. That's incredible humility. And Paul says, that's the attitude you should have in how you treat one another. Don't put your own needs above others, but you put the needs of others first, just like Jesus did. Who, being in very nature, God, didn't, didn't consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage. I'm God, I can do what I want. No, instead he humbled himself. And uh, so this is the tension we see exhibited here in, in, in uh, Jesus sleeping on a boat. Shows divine authority, yet he has human weakness. And that's why they're saying, who, who is this? He has divine authority, but he sleeps and eats with us. So what's going on here? Let's keep going. Read verse 40 of uh, Mark chapter 4. So he said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? 
Do you still have no faith? So, as your outline says, Jesus' question has an implied yes as a response. It's a rhetorical question. It has an implied yes. Um, And this is the first of a series of failures of the disciples that are going to continue through Mark's gospel. Culminates in the events surrounding Jesus' arrest. So this is the first time Jesus looks to the disciples and the apostles and says, really? Like, are you still not getting this? He says, why do you have no faith? Now, we asked that question on your outline because this is an important question. Um, What is biblical faith? What is biblical faith? Lots of times, and I interact with lots of atheists. Um, I just got an email from one yesterday, the Vancouver Atheist Society. is what he said he was the head of, though I looked it up online and it doesn't exist. So I found that ironic. Uh, (laughs) But I digress. Um, So (laughs) often atheists will say, um, faith in the Bible is believing in something in spite of the evidence. That's not at all what biblical faith is. What does it mean to have biblical faith? As your outline says, that word, the Greek word is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, and it means belief or persuaded. So it means belief or persuaded. Okay, is what it means. Now, to have faith as it is understood in the Bible is not to blindly follow. No, not at all. But as your outline says, faith in the biblical sense is properly grounded trust. Properly grounded trust. It's warranted belief. You expressed faith in the chair that you sat in when you came into this room. You didn't stand and go, hmm. I don't know. I'm pretty nervous about sitting down here. Now, maybe you've been in some places where you are nervous about sitting down because the places look wobbly, the chair doesn't look good, but you looked and you, you've had experience with, with these relatively new chairs here at Broadway, and you, you trust the chair. Why? You didn't study it just because you've had a relationship with these chairs, and you know those chairs to be trustworthy, and so you placed your faith in that. You placed the full weight of your life in that chair. That's called faith. And it was a properly grounded trust. It's based on past experience, based on your knowledge, uh, based on uh, um, your life up until this moment. You expressed faith in that chair. And that was, that's the biblical concept of faith. It's properly grounded trust. Now, when it comes to a follower of Jesus, um, God provides the inner and, and the outer grounding for such trust. What do we mean by that? In Romans chapter 8, uh, I was uh, with, is Seth here? Seth Greenham? No. Um, I was with Seth. He's uh, one of our Broadway members, and he uh, runs a ministry at uh, SFU, right? And uh, I was with a group of his people a couple weeks ago and he asked me to come and speak on apologetics and uh, what apologetics is it's apologia is the greek word it's it's to defend uh, the christian faith and in this teaching that i did there that evening i pointed out that apologetics our faith is not grounded on arguments that's not the role of apologetics 
arguments for the existence of God and the evidence for the resurrection. My faith is not grounded on a tightly woven set of arguments. My faith is grounded upon an experience I had and have with the Spirit of God. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 14, puts it this way. 14 to 16. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by this Spirit we cry, Abba, which is the Hebrew word for Father. Now look at verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The foundation of my experience with God and my faith is not arguments. The foundation of my faith is I had an experience with God when I was 19 years of age. That God spoke to me, God called me, and God has, I've had an ongoing experience with God ever since then. And, uh, and I, would, I consider myself a relatively rational person. I'm not prone to having weird experiences. I'm not talking to trees and things like that, you know. I'll hug them now and then because I live in BC, but I don't talk to them. Um, so, you know, I, I consider myself relatively rational, and it's what's called, what some philosophers call a properly basic belief. A properly basic belief, meaning it is rational for you to sit there and think that I actually exist, that I'm not a figment of your imagination, that we aren't all the same mind and we just, it's rational for you to think that you actually are here right now and you're not a brain being stimulated in a vat by some scientist with electrodes. Or that you're not in the matrix. That you actually do exist right here. That's called a properly basic belief. And until you have a defeater, until you have something that proves that your present experience of reality is false, it is okay for you to believe that, that you actually do exist as an individual right now. It's it's a properly basic belief to believe that the past actually existed, that it wasn't made up to appear like the past, that we've only been alive for five seconds and we just think we have memories. You know, you can't prove that those aren't true. You can't prove that you actually exist as an independent being. So you have to assume that your experience of reality is true until you have a defeater. Well, in the same sense, I have a properly basic belief that my experience with God is rational and acceptable and true. Until I have proof. And what apologetics does is it's a layer on top of that that, it, that strengthens my belief. Because my experience of reality is actually validated by many other rational arguments and evidences as well. Okay? And so I say all that to say when it comes to biblical faith, it's not believing in spite of the evidence. No, it's believing because of the evidence. It's a properly grounded trust. I've had experience with God in the past. I have ongoing experiences with God. And the world around me validates my experiences. My rational mind validates it and my experience as well. And that's what Jesus is talking about with trust. Don't, don't you have trust? Don't you properly grounded trust in me? Don't you? I've given you all sorts of evidences. What evidences I give, have I given you that pushes you away from reality? You know, this is what Jesus is asking. Verse 41, let's go back to Mark 4, verse 41. Back to the story. Um, They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? It's our theme, right? Who is this? Um, Even the wind and the waves obey him, okay? 
The theme of Act 1, we said in Mark's drama, is once again on display. Who is this? Terrified literally means it's double fear. Literally in the Greek says they feared with great fear. We were so afraid, we were afraid. They feared with great fear. Um, These guys were scared. And as your outline says, they are puzzled because they think the obvious answer can't be the actual answer. See, this is the tension they're in. They're puzzled, and Jesus is patient with them, because the obvious answer, you're God in flesh because you're doing what only God can do, that can't be the actual answer because God doesn't have a body. See, so they're, they're confused about all this, which is why Jesus had said previously, you can blaspheme against the Son, because I understand that you might not understand uh, the role of the Son. But when you blaspheme against the Spirit, when you reject the work of the Spirit, that's a sin that cannot be forgiven because you're rejecting the very one who will, exp- who will explain the Son to you. I understand that you don't quite understand who I am right now, Jesus was saying. And that can be forgiven if you repent of that sin. But to, re- to reject the Spirit of God can't be forgiven. Why? Because the Spirit is the one who, who reveals the truth to you. And you're, you're cutting off the branch you're sitting on. You're, you're, rejecting, you're rejecting the life preserver that I'm throwing to you. Okay. So they're puzzled here. What seems obvious, that you're God, because you're div- displaying divine authority, can't be true. So they're confused. Again, keep in mind, they didn't read the verse 13 verses of Mark that you read. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. So they don't understand the backstory. Now, in the first passage today, Mark records how Jesus demonstrates his authority over nature. In this next passage, verses 1 to 20 of chapter 5, Mark records an instance where Jesus demonstrates his authority over Satan. Okay, let's pick it up, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Gerasenes is a Gentile region, non-Jew region, non-Jewish region, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which explains why there are pigs there. Because the Jews hated pigs, they were forbidden, so you know you're in Gentile territory when pigs make their appearance. Um, verse 2, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. As your outline says, this verse is filled with allusions to ceremonial uncleanness, uncleanness. Ceremonial uncleanness. The demonic spirit is called impure. The guy in the tombs implies that he's probably had contact with corpses. All of those things would make him ceremonially unclean, unable to access the temple and so on. Okay? Verses 3 to 4, let's keep reading. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Okay? Your outline says, the supernatural strength of the man underlines the supernatural power of Jesus. So the supernatural strength of this man underlines the supernatural power of Jesus. Subdue is the ancient Greek word for taming a wild animal. Let's keep reading verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Um, This self-destructive behavior was often associated with demonic oppression. Um, So this man was in a desperate condition. By the way, in our last tour, we went to a, there's an ancient church that's built on the site that they figured this happened. And it's an archaeological, it goes way back far enough that it's 
pretty legit that this was probably the area. So, you know, we were there amongst these, the hills and the rocks and the tombs and so on. It's quite fascinating to be there and to read this passage. I'm picturing it now as I stand here. And you too can picture it if you join us on March 2020. <laughs> I want you to experience it. It's life-changing. The encounter begins, verses 6 to 8. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. What an odd thing to say. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now, did this man run to attack Jesus and he was met with a superior power? Or did this man run for help and bow in reverence? Most likely the first one, um, or it could be a combination of the two. The demon's words are strange at first glance, aren't they? Um, what's he saying? Read, read them again, verse 7 to 8. Um, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. So what's, what's this demon saying? As your outline says, the demon is saying, what are you doing here? Stay out of my business. You can't torture me. It's not yet the final judgment. It's not yet the final judgment. So think of a child pleading to his parent. I mean, Jan and I raised four kids. We get it. You know, you promised I could stay up till 8 p.m. And it's not 8 p.m. yet. You promised. That's what the demon's saying. What are you doing here? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, you, you can't torture me yet. You can't judge me yet. It's, it's not time yet. It's not 8 o'clock. You know, that's kind of the, what's happening here. It's not yet the final judgment. What, what are you doing here? You're way ahead of schedule. Uh, verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. So Jesus demonstrates his authority by forcing the demon to reveal his name. So for showing that Jesus had superior authority. Legion was the term for the 6,000 Roman foot soldiers and 120 horsemen. So again, this illustrates the depth of the demonic infiltration in this man's life. Now there are some hints in scripture that demons are assigned or limited to specific geographical regions. There's debate about this. I think you could make a strong argument for it. Daniel 10.13 talks about the demon that's limited to the region of Persia, for example. The prince of Persia is called. Um, number seven, the demons plead to remain in the region by infesting a herd of pigs. Verse 10 to 12. Um, says... And he begged. So the demon begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. Okay? So what happens? Jesus grants their, their request. Read verse 13. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Why would Jesus grant their request? It's amazing uh, that when you study this passage, you see, see, and I've been asked about this many times, people seem to be more concerned and more upset about how Jesus treated the pigs than how the demons treated the man. This isn't cruel to animals. Yeah, well, isn't that cruel to that human? You know, what about that? But it's interesting how we kind of, in our society, have kind of 
gone a little bit silly in here, but anyway, mind you, the Jewish readers, when they first reading this, are cheering, yeah, kill those stupid pigs, you know, <laughs> drown the pigs. So why did Jesus grant the demon's request to infest the pigs? Well, as your outline says, it visually displayed the level of his authority and their demonic power. So what a great dramatic display of his authority. Please, please, you know, he's saying this out loud, let us go into the pigs, all right. And he says, go into the pigs. And they go, and suddenly these pigs, who are just calmly eating, rush down and commit pigicide. You know, they jump into the water, and they are all drowned. So what happened to the demons? Well, as your outline says, the depths of the sea was associated with the spiritual underworld. We don't know this for sure, whether this is the rationale here. I'm just giving you a possible answer here. The depths of the sea, we do know, was associated with the spiritual underworld. So Mark's silence on their fate seems to imply that they were sent to hell, awaiting their final judgment. Now remember, we're going to do a teaching on hell back in, in 2019 again. But uh, remember, hell is not the final state of lost people. Hell is a holding place. Think of hell as jail. It's not prison. Hell is the holding place where you, it's the detention center where you're held until your final court date and your pronouncement of guilty, and then you're sent to prison. Then it's the second death. Hell is a holding place where disembodied, rebellious souls are being held, waiting their final judgment. And then, remember, Revelation says, at the final great white throne, hell and death were emptied in to the... Uh, this, uh, the lake of fire, which is the second death. So the implication is these things were, you know, the, the, the depths of the sea was a sign of the spiritual underworld. So the implication could be that they went into their holding place. Now, wasn't this cruelty to animals? As your outline says, it's a matter of relative value between humans and animals. So consider them a casualty of the war between the kingdom of God and the dominion of darkness. Yeah, there are pigs, and yeah, they died. Deal with it. And uh, then go and enjoy your Swiss chalet for lunch and think about what a hypocrite you are. Okay? Number nine. Mark then shifts to the response to the miraculous deliverance. He then shifts to the response to the miraculous deliverance. Verses 14 to 17. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. Can you imagine how much trouble they got in? Where's the pigs? I... I you're the, I put you in charge of my pigs. 2,000 of them, where are they? They're dead. What do you mean they're dead? They drown. What do you mean they drown? Yeah, a guy came and cast a demon into them and they all ran in. Seriously. But that's the, the story that they went back and told. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Isn't that fascinating? Um, so the crowd responds to Jesus similarly to how the disciples responded to Jesus with fear. And I, heard, I read one man put, this, put it this way. People can tolerate religion as long as it doesn't interfere with business found that interesting. As your outline says, fear is understandable. The key is what you do with that fear. Fear is understandable, but is what, what do you do with your fear? Does it cause you to resist and reject God, or does it cause you to respect and revere Him? 
So fear is understandable. Where does that fear lead you? And then finally, verses 18 to 21. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Well, hold on. Jesus tells other people to be quiet. He tells this guy to go home and tell everybody. What's up with that? The next verse is the key. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. As your outline says, Jesus rejects the man's appeal to travel with the other disciples. And he commissions the man with a reason to remain behind. So he rejects his appeal to travel with the other disciples. And Jesus instead commissions this guy. He gives him a reason to remain behind. He says, go and tell everyone. Well, why can this man tell everyone about what happened? But most of the other people Jesus meets are told to keep quiet. The key is in verse 20. Decapolis means the 10 cities. Um, it's like, you know, in some places, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities, you know, or the Tri-Cities area, Poco, Coquitlam, and Port Moody. The tri-cities. Decapolis was the ten cities. And that was a confederation of Gentile cities east of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, why was Jesus telling people to be quiet about his healing when he was in the Jewish region? Because their concept of the Messiah was a political one. And they would be looking for Jesus to rally politically. And he didn't want that confusion. So for the most part, he said, just be quiet about that for now. He knew they'd tell others eventually. But don't be running around saying, the Messiah is over here. Okay, let's go get our, our, our sticks and let's go attack Jerusalem. No, so he, in, the, in the Jewish community, he'd keep it quiet because he wasn't trying to raise up a political rebellion. But here, the Gentiles didn't have that baggage. They didn't have any messianic baggage. So he said, yeah, go tell them in the Decapolis what God has done for you. And with that, I close. Look at that. I'm about a couple minutes. My clock's gone. I can just keep going then. Um, John, I see you here, my friend. God bless you. You asked last week about John chapter 7, 4 to 7. And I said, John, I'm not familiar with the verse that you're... you're uh, uh, talking about and uh, so you dropped by the church this week and you uh, put this in my mail slot John 7 4 to 7 so here it's a great question this verse exists let me read it from John chapter 7 verse 1 uh, Jesus went around in Galilee he did not w want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him that means around Jerusalem but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near Jesus brothers said to him now, you need to understand this in the context. They're being sarcastic. We know that because it, at, at the end of quoting it, John records, for even his own brothers didn't believe in him. So understand this in the spirit it's being said. They're being sarcastic. They're saying, um, so Jesus, he's not going down to Jerusalem. And his brothers say, um, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Don't be so shy, Jesus. Go down to Jerusalem. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. But even his own brothers didn't believe in him, John says. So they're being sarcastic. What are you doing hanging up in Galilee? Why don't you go to the big city? Show everybody how messianic you are. And Jesus tells them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. He says, you're, on, you know, you're not on my father's schedule. For you, it doesn't matter. You don't understand. You don't get it. 
Um, the world cannot hate you, and this was John's question. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify uh, that its works are evil. You go to the festival, Jesus said. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. Um, the irony is he actually did go to the festival later, though, but just not with them. So what Jesus was saying here, John, is he was saying, when he says, the world doesn't, can't hate you, but it hates me, because they were part of the world. They were demonstrating uh, the world doesn't mean cosmos, which means the, uh, the physical world. Um, the world is, is talking about the world, the, the, um, and it doesn't mean people, because uh, God so loved the world, and God created the cosmos. When we talk about the world being against God and not loving the world, it's talking about the world as a, a corrupt system, corrupt value system. Uh, don't be like the world. And Jesus is saying, the world doesn't hate you because you're part of the world. You, you're, you're saying what a worldly person would say to me. But the world hates me. And that's why I can't go to Jerusalem right now because they'll attack me because the world, I'm, I'm calling them out on their stuff. And so my time's not right. It's not yet time for me to go down there and call them out where they'll kill me. But it's not, this is not the time. So hopefully that answers your question, John. And I... God bless you, my friend. And so next time we're together, it's not next week, because next week is Communion Sunday. But hear this, normally in December we have a Christmas series, but because this series is so long, I'm going right through December, okay? So we'll pick this up again in the first Sunday in March. God bless you, and I'll answer questions about this week, that time. I, December. <laughs> Whenever. And March we'll actually still be doing this as well, truth be told. God bless you, thanks for being here today.